This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, June 4th. I'm Rachel Delchudis. And I'm Virginia Allen. As riots continue across America's cities after the killing of George Floyd, law enforcement and local leaders are struggling to stop the violence. Today, I talk with Ken Blackwell, the former mayor of Cincinnati, Ohio, and a board member of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund about how state and local leaders can keep the peace in their cities. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. Derek Chauvin, the police officer who arrested George Floyd and pressed his knee against the man's neck for over eight minutes, is now being charged with second-degree murder. The original arresting charge against Chauvin was third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. On Wednesday, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar tweeted that, quote, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison is increasing charges against Derek Chauvin to second degree in George Floyd's murder and also charging the other three officers. This is another important step for justice. The other three officers present at Floyd's death are expected to be charged with aiding and abetting second-degree murder. Amy Swear, Heritage Foundation legal fellow, joined us on the podcast yesterday to explain why third-degree murder was not the most appropriate charge to have been brought against Chauvin. Swear wrote in a Daily Signal op-ed that, quote, If Chauvin's criminal assault played a causal role in Floyd's death, and it appears it did, then he is guilty of felony murder, even if he did not intend for his assault to kill Floyd. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper says he does not endorse using military force to quell protests if governors fail to take the initiative. On Monday, President Trump said that he would be mobilizing all available federal resources, both civilian and military, to stop the rioting and looting and to end the destruction and arson and to protect the rights of law-abiding Americans, including your Second Amendment rights. Here's what Esper had to say Wednesday while giving remarks at the Pentagon via Global News. I've always believed and continue to believe that the National Guard is best suited for performing domestic support to civil authorities in these situations in support of local law enforcement. I say this not only as Secretary of Defense, but also as a former soldier and a former member of the National Guard. The option to use active duty forces in a law enforcement role should only be used as a matter of last resort and only in the most urgent and dire of situations. We are not in one of those situations now. I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act. President George W. Bush is speaking out about the death of George Floyd. In a statement released on Tuesday on the George W. Bush Presidential Center website, Bush wrote, Laura and I are anguished by the brutal suffocation of George Floyd and disturbed by the injustice and fear that suffocate our country. Yet, we have resisted the urge to speak out because this is not the time for us to lecture. It is time for us to listen. It is time for America to examine our tragic failures. And as we do, we will also see some of our redeeming strengths. The president raised the question, how do we end systemic racism in our society? And he proceeded to answer that question in part by saying, the only way to see ourselves in a true light 
is to listen to the voices of so many who are hurting and grieving. Speaking to the need for a strong and fair justice system, Bush said, But we also know that lasting peace in our communities requires truly equal justice. The rule of law ultimately depends on the fairness and legitimacy of the legal system, and achieving justice for all is the duty of all. Rod Rosenstein, the former deputy attorney general, is walking back his choice to greenlight spying on a former Trump campaign official. During a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing on Wednesday, Rosenstein said he regretted giving the final sign-off for the investigation warrant for Carter Page, a former Trump campaign official who was spied on by the FBI in 2016 because of supposed ties to Russia. Here is the exchange between South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham and Rosenstein via C-SPAN. You signed a warrant application in June of, uh, I think, 2017 to get the uh, Carter Page warrant renewed. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, have you looked at the Horowitz report? Yes, I have. I have it with me, Senator. If you knew then what you know now, would you have signed the warrant application? No, I would not. Okay. And the reason you wouldn't have is because Mr. Horowitz found that exculpatory information was withheld from the court. Is that correct? Among other reasons, yes. Yeah, and somebody actually altered an email. Correct. Right, right. So there were 17 violations that Mr. Horowitz found, but I can't stress enough to the country that he found the most egregious of all. The dossier was the only reason the Carter Page warrant was issued to begin with. In January 2017, the man who provided Steele with all the information told the FBI it was a bunch of garbage and they used it twice more. What kind of country is this? What happens to people who do that? President Trump is restricting travel into the U.S. from China. The U.S. Department of Transportation wrote on Twitter Wednesday that, quote, Today, the U.S. Department of Transportation issued an order suspending the scheduled passenger flights of Chinese carriers to and from the United States, effective by June 16, 2020. The move to suspend the flights is in response to China not allowing American airlines, such as Delta and United, to fly air carriers into their country. The formal order released by the Department of Transportation states, quote, based on the facts before us, we continue to find that the government of China has, over the objections of the U.S. government, impaired the operating rights of U.S. carriers and denied U.S. carriers the fair and equal opportunity to exercise their operating rights under the agreement. Now, stay tuned for my conversation with Ken Blackwell about the protests and riots across America's cities and how state and local leaders should respond. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Canaparo. And if you want to understand what's happening at the Supreme Court, be sure to check out SCOTUS 101, a Heritage Foundation podcast. We take a look at the cases, the personalities, and the gossip at the highest court in the land. It's SCOTUS 101. I am joined by Ken Blackwell, the former mayor of Cincinnati, Ohio, and a board member of the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund. Mr. Blackwell, thank you so much for joining me today. It's so good to be with you. 
Now, you were born in Ohio in 1948. You witnessed firsthand America's journey through the civil rights movement. And I want to begin just by asking you to share a little bit of your own story and what you've seen firsthand as you've watched America over the years really fight against racism. Well, you know, when my father came back from World War II, there was still vestiges of segregation in Cincinnati. There was a housing shortage. And so um, I lived the first uh, few years of my life in, in a public housing uh, community. Uh, great American story. Uh, later in life, I became undersecretary, one of the undersecretaries at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development under Jack Kemp, dealing with how do we expand market housing uh, and how do we use uh, vouchers to make sure that we created a market uh, system for people <clears throat> to break out of uh, to break out of projects uh, and high concentrations of low income families and uh, and so I've, I've I've been blessed in that way and uh, right maybe uh, three fourths of a mile from that public housing community there was city hall and I became the mayor of my city, but I've watched over the years, having been a member of the Congress on, on, on racial equality, better known as CORE, uh, and a, a young member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, when it was under the leadership of James Farmer. Uh, Farmer, uh, it, it was quite an experience to, to see uh, the, the 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 changes that took place uh, in public accommodations and systemic uh, discrimination uh, with uh, legislative action, and I guess I grew up in appreciating uh, that there there were four levels of activity uh, that affected uh, major change, cultural and societal change. Uh, the, the first level. Uh, I learned, you know, was was direct action. Uh, there were peaceful protests, uh, people who uh, who spoke uh, to injustices, uh, even in the face of hostility. Uh, but then there were there was legislative action. You know, the, the great uh, bipartisan efforts uh, in the Congress that brought about major civil rights legislation. Uh, in the in the mid '60s uh, and 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 late '60s, uh, and then you had uh, court action, uh, and and so that was you had courts that uh, broke down uh, systemic uh, racism and 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 segregation, uh, but the the other area of of activity was uh, person to person. You know, whether it was neighbor to neighbor, family member to family member, uh, church member to church member, uh, it was a, a, a genuine dialogue that, that brought about meaningful action. And I came to realize that great nations are not the products of great governments. The great nations are the products of good people doing great things together. And it's no mystery to me why over 240 years, we've gone from the institution of slavery uh, to in 2008, electing a, a black man president of the United States. Uh, and even if I didn't agree with his policy initiatives, 
what I saw in Barack Obama's election was that there was a, a continuous breakdown in race as being a barrier to opportunity. Uh, and so whether it's been uh, the Heritage Foundation or my work with Jack Kemp, uh, there, I, I've, 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 my own personal experience has put me on the side of creating and expanding an opportunity society as opposed to uh, initiatives that expands the welfare state and the role of government in, in our lives. And it starts with a basic understanding that that family uh, unit that I was a part of, you know, that family unit was the incubator of liberty in my life uh, and gave me an appreciation for individual initiative and hard work. Uh, and that's what I've tried to do uh, in terms of my, my public activity. And I'll just tell you, uh, that's what breaks my heart when I see uh, businesses being burned down, when I, when I see uh, some of the most vulnerable in our society not having access uh, to badly needed uh, prescriptions uh, when their when their CVS or their Walgreens are uh, looted and, and and burned. Yeah, well, and I I'm glad that you brought that up because I want to discuss that further with you. And first, I just want to say thank you for providing us with that history. And you know, I think it's it's so important to look back, and you know we need to see where we've come from and how far we've come in order to see the work that still needs to be done. So that's so important to, to look, you know, at this pivotal moment in history from that, you know, broader historical context. I want to ask you about a piece that you wrote in Fox News discussing uh, the violence and the role specifically that mayors play in keeping peace in their cities. Speaking as the former mayor of Cincinnati, how would you recommend mayors handle the riots that they're seeing in their cities? Well, first, they had to realize that they are on the tip of the sphere. The reality is that if you look at the landmass uh, covered by the United States of America, uh, you know that it is, and, and you look at the size of our population, uh, over 225 million people, there's just no way that we're going to create a context for, of, of peace and civility, uh, a context that's necessary for, 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 for positive uh, political and cultural change uh, from the White House or from the governor's mansions. Uh, it, it takes place in our neighborhoods, in our cities, uh, and mayors and local leaders are at, at the point. So one, uh, <clears throat> at, at, at the moment of the, uh, the outrageous uh, taking of uh, George uh, Floyd's life, and people started to speak to the vivid imagery that they saw on their TV screens, uh, the, the ability to address this in, in public protests and, and, and civil discussion uh, was, 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 was very, very important. And it's a legitimate part of the, the American experience. Uh, and believe me, that was, that was working. It was across party lines. It was across ethnic lines. It was across, uh, you know, geographical lines and, 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 and what happened is that a large, you know, a, a sluggish government response picked up steam. 
and you had the 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 firing, you had the arrest, uh, and you had uh, an accelerated effort to construct uh, a, a, a vigorous prosecution strategy, and now you see that the other officers are are being uh, are arrested. That was that was progress. That was constructive. That was the sort of action that you want to see in America in 2020. But then you had those who saw it as an opportunity to disrupt and destroy and divide. And so at a moment when we should have been turning to one another, these forces had us turning on one another because what they want is a disruption of civil society uh, so that they can advance uh, their their agenda, which is to take America off of the track that we're on, where we are the most diverse, the most prosperous constitutional republic in the history of the world. And, and, and that is not to say that we are perfect. It's like what Lincoln said, uh, we are not a perfect union, but we are perfectible. And it goes back to this sort of person-to-person -person community uh, action level uh, in, in using the subsidiarity model uh, where, where the action is most meaningful is at the lowest level. And in this case, that action is in families and communities and cities. In recent years, many people have argued that police treat African-Americans unfairly and that there's really a problem of police brutality towards African-Americans. What do you think about that? Do you think that that is correct? Well, there, there, there's been that history, but things have gotten better. If you look at the trend line of excessive use of force and, and, and deaths that have resulted, and you look at it in terms of race, if you look at it in terms of uh, you know, death per per thousand. Which which what you find is that there have been more whites that have died uh, as as a result of the excessive use of force uh, from police officers than 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 blacks. You know, yeah. If you look at the numbers, uh, the it it is it doesn't fit with the uh, proportion of uh, the American population that blacks are compared to whites, but the trend line has, has come down. And as a former mayor that, that dealt with the reviewing of, of, of action uh, by police officers that resulted in citizens' death, uh, wrongful death, uh, what, I, what I have seen across this country working with police uh, unions, community activists, is that we've seen a trend line where it is rapidly coming down. Do you have individual uh, actors who who act on on the basis of racial prejudice? Yes, uh, and they must be rooted out, just like uh, a, a tooth with with with, with tooth decay. Uh, but but to, but to say that America is uh, the most racist uh, country on the face of the earth, or that we are a racist country? Uh, which the 1619 project uh, uh, hosted by the, the New York Times wants to say, this is flat out wrong. You have to have the imagination of Jonathan Swift to buy into that. 
we've in fact seen progress. And so this is not a matter of whether or not we have we still experience uh, bad actors. We do. It's, it's our response. And that's why it is so it is so heartening to see what the response is in Minneapolis today. Well, and, you know, you mentioned that, you know, as as Americans, we have come a long way. And I think, you know, I think you're so right that we're kind of uh, we're, we're in this critical moment. And do you do you see what's going on right now in the wake of George Floyd's death as an opportunity for further progress that we could actually move even further towards uh, you know, eradicating racism in our nation out of really a tragic situation? I think I think one we there there's there's been decade after decade of breaking down the the racial the divide uh, you know the, the whole notion of e pluribus unum from the many one it really does pivot around uh, our buying into uh, tr- transcendent ideals. Uh, and, and so there is this 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 confrontation between those moral absolutes uh, and and moral relativism. And Dr. King, in his effort uh, to 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 bring about a, a a a better union, a better United States, understood that it was organizing around those universal values, those moral values that that actually gave us. The basis that we could affect change, because you know, if relativism wins, uh, you don't have equal justice. Uh, and so, those that would like to choose policies and practices of division and subtraction, uh, if if they have their way, it, it it gets harder and harder to to bring about the sort of uh, community action that's necessary to totally. Uh, and, and, and substantially eradicate uh, any vestiges of, of, of racism that is reinforced by any institutional practice. We've come a long way, uh, and, and 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 again, we will always have idiots who act on uh, motives of race. Uh, but we we in fact have a history of creating opportunities and and reducing any institutional practice of race. Uh, again, I, I look at departments uh, across and, and and we have to we have to look at data. You know, and 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 so a lot of the officer citizen deaths uh, through ex- excessive use of force, not a, a, a nice percentage have been black officers on black victims. You know, we, we, we have to understand that those of us who went on the line to integrate our police forces now are just as concerned by making sure that those folks who we depend on to keep our communities safe and our properties protected, uh, they, in fact, must be respected and protected. 
Given your experience uh, on the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund Board, I want to ask you, uh, just kind of circling back to the riots and the protests, how you think that police have been handling that? Do you think that they're using the correct level of force, or or do you think that in some cases they should adjust their methods? Well, no, no, I think I think they have. I, you know, I I, I think uh, what I've been able to witness. Uh, I've, I've, I've seen them, some some line officers being willing to take abuse, and that's crazy. You know, so the, 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 the issue here is there are techniques, you know, make, make sure that there are corridors where, where, where public protests can take place. Yes, if you have to use curfews, use curfews. If you have to use schedules where, where protests and, and voices can, can speak, you know their concerns to those in authority. Do it, do it that way. But there is no reason, no reason for anybody to accept bottles being thrown at police officers. And here in Cincinnati, you know, a, a firearm being shot and 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 hitting the equipment uh, of, of 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 a police officer. You know, let's let's go back. There have been police officers that have that have taken. Uh, not only gunshots, there have been police officers killed. Uh, and, and so we really have to uh, make sure uh, that, that, that we are, are looking at data and understanding that these police officers uh, have a job to do and their first obligation is to keep us safe uh, and, uh, and, and provide their resources to make sure that we have a an atmosphere of civility where we can disagree but we disagree to disagree and 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 we can we can bring about about justice through genuine dialogue and we, we're starting to see that play out in minneapolis but for some folks you know any progress is no progress because they have a false standard of progress. Well, I certainly want to encourage our listeners to go uh, to Fox and read your op-ed that was uh, so well written and so well articulated on this subject. And Mr. Blackwell, I just really want to thank you so much for your time and your insight today. Well, God bless you. It's good to be with you. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. We appreciate your patience as we record remotely during these weeks. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts and give us your feedback. Stay healthy and we will be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.